This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Make Yourselves Gods, Mormons and the Unfinished Business of American Secularism by Dr. Peter Coviello. From the perspective of Protestant America, 19th century Mormons were the victims of a peculiar zealotry, a population deranged socially, sexually, even racially, by the extravagances of belief they called religion. Make Yourselves Gods offers a counter-history of early Mormon theology and practice, tracking the saints from their emergence as a dissident sect to their renunciation of polygamy at centuries end. Over these turbulent decades, Mormons would appear by turns as heretics, sex radicals, refugees, anti-imperialists, and colonizers, and eventually reluctant monogamous and enfranchised citizens. Reading Mormonism through a synthesis of religious history, political theology, native studies, and queer theory, Coviello deftly crafts a new framework for imagining orthodoxy, citizenship, and the fate of the flesh in 19th century America. What emerges is a story about violence, wild beauty, and extravagant imaginative power of this era of Mormonism. An impassioned book with a keen interest in the racial history of sexuality and the unfinished business of American secularism. Peter Coviello is a professor of English at the University of Illinois at Chicago, specializing in American literature and queer theory. His research considers the entangled histories of intimacy and empire in 19th century America, with particular attention to questions of secularism, biopolitics, and sex. His books include Tomorrow's Parties, Sex and the Untimely in 19th Century America, and Long Players, a memoir selected as one of Art Forum's 10 Best Books of 2018. His work has appeared in a range of academic journals, as well as magazines and reviews, and he joins me today to talk about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. Welcome, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in your field. Yeah, well, I am a literature professor. I, I should I should say off the top, my I specialize in nineteenth century America and in queer theory, and I've been doing that for you know uh, a couple of dozen years, and that got me into a lot of different terrain. I should I should say I write different stuff as well. I've written like scholarly books and theoryish books and historyish books, but also a lot of like personal essays and I've written a memoir and stuff like that. Uh, so a lot of my career has been trying out different things that I perhaps did not know how to do when I began them. 
Okay, well, that makes sense because this book brings together a wide variety of um, diverse fields. So I wanted to ask you how this book in particular uh, came into being. And so, because it is pretty interdisciplinary in some pretty unique ways. So perhaps as you tell us how this project took shape, maybe also give us a sense of how to understand where it fits in with existing scholarship on early Mormon history, literary criticism, and secularism. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that is a great question. Uh, the book has sort of a, a, a like the one of the first things to say, and when I talk about it, I often say like, there's a real way in which uh, I'm an odd person to be writing a book like this. I'm not a religious historian, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not a historian. I'm a literature professor, and I specialize in 19th century American queer theory. And sort of the germination of the book begins with a book I wrote previously, not quite ten years ago now, which was about the history of sexuality the racial history of sexuality. And it sort of asked like, what was erotic life like before the end of the 19th century when categories like hetero and homosexuality really calcified, really came into their social clarity? That's what that book was about. And it read, you know, a lot of literature from uh, Whitman to, to Dickinson and Thoreau and Frederick Douglass and stuff like that. Um, so that's what I was, that's what I was interested in. But it seemed to me that you oughtn't to write a book about sex in the 19th century without speaking about the great sex scandal at the middle of the 19th century, which was, of course, Mormon polygamy. And that was a scandal that that lasted over the whole course of the second half of the 19th century. So I started writing about Mormonism for that book and writing about Joseph Smith. And man, I'll tell you, it, it became, it was the last chapter I wrote for that book, and it just became clear to me that I had so barely scratched the surface of things there were to be interested in by 19th century Mormonism, and particularly the history of sexuality in 19th century Mormonism. So I thought, okay, I have to, I have to think more about what I want to say about that. At the same time, I became really um, um, enamored by and sort of like um, um, f- uh, just intellectually challenged by this burgeoning field, this scholarly field that you might call for shorthand, something like post-secular critique, like people who are interested in thinking about secularism, not as the absence of religiosity, the cure for religiosity in public, but as its own kind of political epistemology. Unsurprisingly, this work was really solidified by September 11th and the sort of like, one might say, global pandemic of Islamophobia, which gave real point to the sort of imperial redemptive mechanisms of secularism, like Talal Assad, Sabah Mahmoud, the great historian Joan Scott, Americanist literary criticism, uh, folks like Jared Hickman, uh, Tracy Fessenden, John Modern, these people sort of became real intellectual guiding lights to me. And writing about 19th century Mormonism became a way for me to enter into that conversation, which is all to say, like, the book is trying to speak uh, in a number of conceptual languages at once and to provide a kind of synthesis between them. Uh, queer theory, perhaps most of all, but also post-secular critique, native studies, political theology, um, And that made for a kind of challenge. Uh, And the happy thing was that like the object itself, 19th century Mormonism and all of its like tremendous uh, strangeness and diversity and and, uh, disquieting power was a real great object if your goal was to synthesize a number of like fractiously interacting conceptual idioms. 
Excellent. So let's begin by defining the terms. Your entire first chapter is devoted to constructing a definition of secularism in a way that was frankly um, unfamiliar to me, and I imagine may also be unfamiliar to many. And so just to put a fine point on it, uh, for example, you quote Jill and Jar as saying, quote, Orientalism is secularism and secularism is Christianity. So can you unpack that for us? <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah, Gil Anajar writes with a like a syllogistic compression right there. Uh, but I guess you would say there's a, a couple scales at which to describe what I mean when I talk about secularism, which is, of course, an immensely hard thing to des- describe, um, in part because the aim of post-secular critique is to describe a set of environing conditions a set of environing conditions and a, a political epistemology that makes concepts emerge and grants to them the solidity we think they have, like, say, the concept of religion. Now, there's for a long time been a great impatience with what we could call the secularization thesis, the idea that once there was an enchanted world and people believed weird semi-rational or counter-rational things, and then the bright light of modernity shone upon us and we became disenchanted and rational. For a long time, people have said, that's not really a credible way of telling the story of modernity, or rather, it's the way that like the victors of modernity's many seasons of irrationality and perfectly rational bloodletting like to narrate their own sanguinary history so that it seems, you know, progressive once there was darkness, now there's light, once there was mystification, and now there is clarity. And so like, Anajar is talking about something like that, like, sure, when uh, uh, imperialists spanned the globe after Columbus, they weren't saying we're here to murder indigenous people in unimaginable numbers and to seize their land and flesh. They'd say, we're here to bring the holy light of Christian devotion to the benighted. So that's something of what he means by the link between uh, Orientalism, Christianity, and secularism. He thinks of he, he is ensuring us, it, encouraging us to think of like the racialization of Christianity in the context of the imperialization of the globe. So that that's that's sort of one way of thinking about the broad scale of secularism. But for me, which is related to this, I'm trying to think of secularism as the political epistemology that governs what we can think, how we can conceptualize in a given historical framework. And for me, I'm really interested in the 19th century, the moment where uh, secularization in registers both public and private as a set of interwoven norms is becoming solidified. So like, I, I guess I would say like the, the, the claim of the book is that secularism it doesn't name like the extirpation of religion in public life or the sake or the or of the sacred. It's not like the triumph of cold rationality. I'm trying to get at the way it marks out something of like the way that modes of belief to be counted as religious at all need to comport with the dictates of and the many norms of something like liberal polity, norms that are sexual, social, bodily, uh, economic. And that sort of capacious sense of secularism as a set of environing conditions is what it seems to me the Mormon story helps us to see in clarified relief. We get to see secularism as, in essence, and this is a phrase I'll use a lot, a disciplinary project. 
something that shapes what will wish to be counted as religion according to a set of norms about, again, sex, intimate life, family, devotion, uh, the body itself, sociality more generally. So that's a, a somewhat long and perhaps not clarifying introduction to the sense of uh, what is meant by secularism in the book. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, as I got through that chapter, I realized that it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like what you describe as secularism is really more about a collective attitude of self-described Enlightenment values Christians who, because, you know, they dominated discourse and made up a huge proportion of, if not complete proportion of um, of the Western countries and the colonial countries. And it was about uh, their way of telling the story of their problematic colonial history, as you kind of alluded to, the victors tell the, uh, you know, tell the history. Um, so because... I'm more familiar with describing secularism as the the um, as just a state of absence of religion, whether that be between church and state or just any co- cultural social content that is absent of religion. And so, I wondered if you could compare your definition of secularism. Uh, with that yeah, concept, totally, totally, Carolyn. That's a great question, and I would want to. I would want to hasten to say um, uh, that uh, that I, I couldn't claim this as my definition of secularism, so much as I'm following in the lead of those scholars I mentioned before, who mean so much to me. Everyone from philosophers like Charles Taylor to most especially anthropologists like Talal Assad and Sabah Mahmoud, and great historian like Joan Walk Scott and others. Uh, I would say. Uh, that for me again, the 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 matter is partially exactly as you say that the story of secularization, as a shift from benighted past to enlightened present, works splendidly as a way that like imperial moderns can tell the tale of their triumph, not in the key of bloodletting, but in the key of progress. Absolutely, absolutely. But it seems to me that an effect of that. An important, uh, uh, um, like aftershock of that, is again conceptual. Is about a, a governing political epistemology that allows us to recognize something as religious at all. A real key premise of the thing that I do, which would be sort of post secular critique, would be to just remind people forcefully that there is no substance out in the world called religion. It's not like oxygen. It's not like an element in the periodic table. That, oh, there's this thing called religion, and it has this essence, and it travels in different expressions across the world. Scholars like Anajar, Tomoko Mazazawa are incredibly smart about this point. It is rather that religion must be made to appear as such, and to be made to appear as such, you need a sort of vast machinery at once, conceptual, social, political, state and non-state actors, interwoven norms that make things appear as such. Secularism, for me is the name of the operative cogency between those systems, which is, of course, always historical and up for grabs and contested, but nevertheless, as you say, possesses like a social and political gravity, is, uh, uh, has the capacity to operate as a discipline, something that um, uh, disallows certain possibilities and foments others. That's, a, that's sort of super important to my own sense of what secularism is and does. 
Okay, so that brings me to my next question, which is about, um, so you basically, you're talking about secularism's arrogant attitude of validating others' cultures, um, which extends beyond their religious beliefs to include ideas about uh, the right way for people to aspire to gender equality, for example, or to aspire to to a position of anti-racism. But as you point out, these secular moralists often miss their own hypocrisy in this regard. So can you elaborate that argument and also how you uh, see this connecting to your notion of biopolitics? Yeah, totally. That's a great question. I, I will say from the first that that uh, the category of hypocrisy is just sort of not an, not an important one to me because it's like, I think people do mean what they say. The categories that are that are much more important to me are like dispossession and things like that. Like, uh, so... Um, one of the effects of secularism, as we've been describing it, as sort of the, the conceptual order proper to the imperial domination of the globe, such that Christians would say, we're not dispossessing people of their land. We are actually bringing the holy light of both uh, Christian uh, uh, redemptive policies and also enlightenment reason. The uh, effect of that would be to produce uh, a lot of versions of racialization, like racialization here. Uh, scaled uh, uh, at the level of like gods. I'm thinking here along with thinkers like Sylvia Winter, uh, also a younger scholar who I'm enormously indebted to named Jared Hickman, who writes so smartly about the effect of 1492 as like a, a, a colliding contact between orders of gods, whereby Christians in the ascendancy, as he says, like make themselves gods, produce for themselves the rights to dispense life and death as they see fit. And they understand that as properly Christian because they're uh, taking land from people who are outside the order of God, who are expendable in that way. Expendability is for me a lot of the language of racialization. And you can see how uh, 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 the redemptive politics of imperial secularism rush together redemption and racialization. I mean, this is not a not a hard thing to imagine in the in the contemporary world that like uh, imperial countries understand themselves to be rescuing the benighted, to be saving someone. And the mechanisms of racialization, another way of describing that uh, is the idiom of biopolitics, of making live and letting die, of setting entire populations in varying relation to expendability uh, and value. That would be that would sort of be the short version of what I mean by uh, the biopolitics of secularism, which is a phrase I use a lot. Okay, so that's that's interesting that you say that hypocrisy is not really what you focus on. Because my next question was about that. So, um, so forgive me as I still work through <laughs> not what, at all. What uh, how I should come to understand secularism in this chapter? So, because because I wondered. Um, if your criticism was focusing on the proponents of secularism because basically they fail to live up to the progress towards rationalism, equality, toleration, I was going to use the word hypocrisy, that they're hypocrites, but maybe just that they they fail to meet the, the goals purportedly set out by secularism. Or is there a problem with the secularization thesis itself? Yeah, I was not the former, more the latter. Like the problem with like I put it like this, put it like this. Um, there's a way of imagining religion as uniquely benighting, right? Something that really equips us to be unjust and exploitative. And one thing to say to that is actually, if the last uh, 500 years have taught us anything, it's that rationality does quite well 
on its own as an engine for exploitation and dominion, right? So one does not need religion to be any of those things. Um, and the uh, uh, religion can serve as a kind of alibi for rationality's own violences. Like if, you're, if your frame of reference is around like dispossession and violence, and a differentiated violence that happens at the scale of the planet with empire, then hypocrisy doesn't really come into it. It's not a matter of people meaning things or not meaning things. It's rather like an order and a structure of exploitation that has its own explanation. Like, like I'm perfectly happy to have a critique of religion, as you know from having read the book. The book is not without a critique of Mormonism. It is on guard against, however, critiques that are implicit apologetics for what I will call again and again, like the empire of liberalism. Liberalism here, not as like the thing that's not conservatism, but as like the political epistemology of capital after the 18th century. And I'm super on guard against things that are implicitly ratifying or apologizing for the dispossessive violence at the center of that empire. And secularism, it seems to me, or, or rather post-secular critique, gives you a really sharp analytic for refusing those apologetics. Yes, that does make sense. Okay, so let's turn to early Mormon history. Yeah. You, f- <laughs> <laughs> you find that Joseph Smith's writings and his introduction of the practice of polygamy as well reveal a unique understanding of what you call the character and fate of embodied life as well as a vision of divinizing the flesh. And these fly in the face of secular sensibilities about good belief. So unpack this for us. Oh, absolutely. Carolyn, yeah, absolutely. So um, like a thing to, 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 to get about Mormonism, like Mormonism has a, a distinct theological shape, it seems to me, and it's built around something called exaltation. Like, so Mormonism is among the other thing, among the other ways you could describe it, this like vast rebuke to the orders of Calvinism, say, which posit this radically other, unknowably different God, a God who like speaks from the whirlwind, has nothing in kind, nothing in common with humankind that he kind of has a sort of sadistic contempt for. Joseph Smith produces a vision of God that is that in reverse, in which God is like a person who became a God in which the universe is held together by one substrate of matter. It's not like the gods exist in heavens and that's made of different stuff. It's that there's one matter holding together the earth and the heavens. Part of what this means for Smith, well, it means a lot of things. One is which, one of which is that persons in the mortal world for Smith, persons, you and me, are living lives whose destiny is in divinization. We are meant to become God. That's the like, that's what exaltation means. That's what God wants for us. He wants uh, divinization for us. He wants us to go from a small capacity to a large capacity. I'm essentially free and direct quoting Joseph Smith now. Um, And one of the things I was so struck by when I was reading this work as a non-Mormon, I hadn't had a lot of occasion to sit with Joseph Smith, is that again and again, the thing that makes this kind of impossible knowledge um, um, flare up for human subjects, the thing that brings you into glancing contact with the unthinkable knowledge that you are yourself an embryonic God, for Smith, again and again, it's embodied life. It's the deranging pleasures of living in a body, a body that's made of the same stuff as God. 
Like there's not two kinds of matter. Remember, there's not like God's matter and your matter. You're made of divinity. It's in your body. And pleasure, this is partially explains why pleasure is such an important category for early Mormonism. They were known as the dancing Puritans because they believed in pleasure. Man is that he might have joy, Joseph Smith would say. It seemed to me like, wow, that is an intense theological set of premises. That's an intense cosmology at the root of which is um, the, the revelatory power of embodied life. That embodied life is always delivering back to you the strange and almost inconceivable news that you are yourself an embryonic God. Polygamy follows from that. Polygamy is not some like, for as far as I'm concerned, some like sort of like daffy theological accident, like, oh, it'd be cool to have a lot of wives. No, it expresses in a variety of ways that I try to talk about the uh, theory of the sort of like radical theory of embodied life that is at the center of early Mormonism. As such an interesting um, analysis of early Mormonism, because that is not how we would think of Mormons today, which is kind of foreshadowing where you go with the book yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I have to bring up, because I'm sure it would be on everybody's mind, and you kind of alluded to this too, like you do acknowledge that one way to account for Mormonism's adoption of polygamy is simply that Joseph Smith, in the grand tradition of cult leaders the world over, just wanted to legitimize among his followers his desire to sleep with all the women in his vicinity. We also have, you know, I think there's some historical evidence to suggest that that's a reasonable way of, of looking at it too. But you approach this very differently as you kind of already alluded to. Um, and you do think there's a lot more to be found here. So so continue telling us about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like that is the that is the sort of uh, standard line, right, on uh, sexual practices that are non-normative. And like the point of uh, secular critique isn't like there can be no critique of sexual practices that are non-normative. Talk about this in the uh, chapter on women particularly. But a couple things to say. One, uh, this seems like a really bad way to go about having lots of sanctified sex. Like Joseph Smith is a man in 19th century America. Like the yoke of marital exclusiveness already falls on him rather lightly. This is a patriarchal world. He doesn't just want other uh, intimacies. He wants them sacralized too. And much more important for me, one of the great dramas of early Mormonism, it plays out again and again and again, is Joseph Smith revealing the revelation that God calls us to polygamy and people just freaking out like, no, can't do it. Can't do it. It so totally violates the norms according to which I have understood my life, my social world, my very body. I can't do it. So for Smith and for a lot of the early Mormons, the thing about polygamy that is instructive is that it feels impossibly wrong, is that it just feels like, like a thing that one should not possibly be doing. And that, like, is instructive for Joseph Smith because he's trying to get you to unlearn the Pauline sense of your uh, body's corruption and fallenness. That's part of what makes polygamy for him, like, like a central uh, uh, component of life. It's like an educative training ground for the denaturalization of the body you brought to it, uh, ruined by a sense of Christian uh, Pauline corruption. Um, so for all those reasons, I think, like, the vision of him as, like, uh, uh, like power maddened tyrant I mean, sort of uh, holds a lot less water. It seems a way of not encountering a variety of like specifically counter secularizing 
uh, position that Smith takes. This does not mean to, pro to project him or Mormonism from the rigor of critique. Not at all. There are lots of things you could say. I wouldn't make that critique. Uh, he's a, a religious madman. You know what I mean? Like, as no one better than a scholar named um, Nancy Bentley says, there's a great tradition of thinking about polygamy as a kind of horror, the point of which is to sanctify patriarchal monogamy as true freedom. As though for women, patriarchal monogamy is really working out wonderfully. That's really the best thing, that if you produce polygamy itself as this unique in horror, Professor Bentley's point is that it sort of sanctifies marriage, patriarchal marriage in the 19th century, as freedom itself. We might have a lot of reason to be skeptical of that freedom. I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> However, I can't help but retain some skepticism. Uh, I mean, I think you bring really, really interesting points up about the, the divinization of the body, etc. But I can't help but also think um, that when you're arguing that actually, honey, polygamy is super hard for me too. This is just another way to gaslight women. But anyway, regardless, setting that aside, because that's not really the point of, of where you're going with your analysis. Let's talk about the women. Right. It gets us right into the next chapter. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you look at women's uh, more early Mormon women's experiences with their belief that Mormon bodies were the vessels of embryonic gods, which raises yeah. the problem because they it is such a patriarchy patriarchal uh, environment, um, you know, does does that status extend to them? And how do they get their heads around what's going on with all this new theology? So yeah, tell us about that. Oh, that's a great question. Like, so um, as we know from the 21st century, the 20th and the 19th, there's no story that secular moderns like to tell so much about uh, religions they want to extirpate or destroy as the one that goes like this. The women in it are subject to a unique mesmerizing subservience and they require secular redemption they require freedom in other terms mormon women were very aware of this as a take on them and it was infuriating as anyone's set of devotions being rescripted as just mesmeric subservience would be you know what i mean like and sabah mahmoud is a the great 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 critic uh, in this key, and I recommend her warmly, and I'm really trying to follow out uh, Sabah Mahmoud in the key of the Mormon 19th century. So what fascinates me about Mormon women in the 19th century is the sense that in early Mormons, particularly in Nauvoo in the 1840s particularly, polygamy is a kind of uh, a, a structure being invented on the fly by a handful of devotees in a relatively small community, and they're following revelation upon revelation in a hothouse atmosphere that's rather small. And there's an institution called the Female Relief Society where women got together uh, to, to uh, work together and to speak about their faith, in which Joseph Smith made a number of speeches. And they're very easy to read as like, oh, well, the thing about polygamy is a man marries many women and they all belong to him. That's absolutely there. But he says so many hugely countervailing things in those speeches, too. Perhaps the greatest of which is um, uh, who knows the mind of God? Does he not reveal things differently than we expect? It's the thing he says at the Female Relief Society. And Carrie Lynn, oh my God, I, it, it's, it's not difficult to imagine the women gathered there 
thinking, oh, this is like an avenue toward divinization for me. It, it's a way of imagining that the patriarchalization of the world is a part of the Christianization of the world that Mormonism wants to overwrite and undo. There's a way of thinking of Mormonism as like a throwback to the past, like Joseph Smith is really trying to re-inhabit Old Testament Bibles. I get that, but it seems to me wrong. Like the whole point of Mormonism is as a redoing of Christianity, reading of Christianity as wrongheaded, misbegotten, uh, apostatizing in some way. And you can see women in the Female Relief Society say, oh, maybe patriarchal life is a part of the apostasy that Joseph Smith wants to overturn. Of course, it doesn't quite turn out that way for a number of reasons, one of which has everything to do with like the Mormon's place in 19th century America's uh, political and social imaginary, where over the course of the latter half of the century, more and more institutions, state and otherwise, are trying to destroy them. Why? Because they are understood as barbaric. They're understood as threatening civilization itself with their non-monogamy. So as I try to explain in both the end of the first part of the book and more largely in the, uh, the next part of the book, for the Mormons, insisting on patriarchy, on patriarchy became a way of uh, making cutting a distinction between themselves and those other sorts of perverts who might not be monogamous, like, say, native peoples who were, of course, uh, led social lives not organized by dyadic monogamy. It's as though the Mormons would say, yes, 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 we are polygamous, which from the Christian American perspective seems wrong, but it's not. We're really so like you. You know how we are like you? With our ever-escalating patriarchy and indeed our ever-escalating embrace of the racial state and our role as colonizers. But that's to anticipate a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn next to the theme of racism found yeah. in the Book of Mormon, because as anybody who's the least familiar with Mormonism will know, part of its foundational claims about the early tribes of, Is you know, really early tribes of Israelites that came over to North America thousands of years ago in wooden submarines, um, you know, they had wars with the Lamanites and they became dark skinned. Um, because God cursed them. And this is how we explain the darker skinned Native American peoples you see around you today in 19th century America. So, I mean, the pretty straightforward interpretation of this is that Joseph Smith was a product of a deeply racist age, and he was just reproducing that in his storytelling. But you problematize this understanding and read it through a lens, uh, this lens of secularism's vilification of bad belief, mm -hmm. and by analyzing what you identify as the book's inherent anti-colonial critique that is the book of mormon's anti-colonial yeah. critique which is super different so yeah, yeah tell us about that well, i'm happy to and again here i would follow really the lead of uh, just a, a scholar whose gifts i cannot overstate named jared hickman who helps us see like so the book of mormon isn't <laughs> i'll say for those of you who have not read it i'm gonna assume that uh, some of your uh, listenership will not have read the book of mormon it's not like the bible in the sense that it's not written in what is purporting to be the omniscient voice of God. It is not an omniscient text. It's assembled by scribes, by participants in the drama that it unfolds. What happens in the drama? Well, in the drama, uh, the just Nephites, the white and delightsome Nephites, uh, uh, lose a millennial race war uh, to the Lamanites, their accursed dark-skinned brethren. All the narrators we get, all the narrators we get are Nephites, right? 
and in a certain way, the book tells the story of Nephite declension, of Nephite sinfulness that justifies their destruction at the hand of a displeased God whose agent is the Lamanites. It doesn't take much to read this as a kind of like anti-colonial critique, especially when you read what the Lamanites say. The Lamanites say like, hey man, you're out here trying to destroy us. You're claiming that we're racially different from you, that where our sinfulness comes from bloodlines and our fathers. In fact, you are the sinful people. In fact, you are not living uh, into the uh, 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 up to the righteousness that, to which God calls you. And in fact, you can't understand that. So convinced have you become of your own righteousness. So convinced have you become of your like racialized goodness. Read in that key, the Book of Mormon is like this vast uh, uh, undoing of imperial arrogance. And indeed, the 19th century Mormons saw it this way. They saw it as a prophecy uh, that was uh, prophesying the destruction, not of themselves, but of Americans who they disidentified from, who they disidentified from, identifying themselves, right, with Lamanites, with native peoples. And they thought of the Lamanites, the native peoples, as people who will expedite the destruction of America uh, in the way that the Nephites were destroyed. But as it turns out, identification with native people had a lot of difficult stakes for the Mormons and was not something they could really sustain over the course of the 19th century for reasons that I talk about in some detail. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? How did it work out for them? Did they become uh, shining examples of <laughs> anti-racists? Uh, right. Like part of the problem, right, is that so... Um, and it, it's worth saying, like, the Mormons aren't kidding when they say that the state was trying to murder them. Like, when you look at the 19th century, you see a variety of acts of war from uh, Missouri uh, Governor Boggs's extermination order in 1838 to the Utah War in 1857, 1858, when like a third of federal troops went to Utah ready to lay waste to the Mormons. Like, the Mormons wanted more than anything else to be a sovereign nation apart from the uh, incursions of federal authority. In that, they seem like Native people, right? They are claiming for themselves a sovereignty larger than that of the United States. Of course, one way to, to uh, refuse that sovereignty, as the story of Native peoples made clear, was to understand them as racialized, as expendable life, as in the idioms of anti-Mormonism, Mohammedan. Uh, slave-like, Asiatic, um, as counterfeited in their whiteness. And the Mormons responding to the sense of themselves as counterfeited white people and therefore fit to be annihilated, sought to disidentify, to separate themselves from the people who they wanted to be understood as more properly racialized, native peoples, slaves. They wanted to understand themselves as, no, 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 we're properly white, which is to say we deserve sovereignty. We understood rightly whiteness to be a liver for sovereignty. That liver only works as you disidentify from the native peoples you too closely resemble. So what do the uh, Mormons do in the 19th century? They make themselves known as colonizers. They make themselves known as people uh, who will absorb uh, indigenous people into the tribe of whiteness. They uh, make themselves known as, again, different from native peoples, because while they may be polygamous, while they may be non-monogamous, they're also radically patriarchal, cutting a hard, and for them, racial difference between themselves and native people. 
Americans. They also refuse, after Young, uh, the admission of uh, African Americans as, again, a part of like cutting a hard distinction between themselves and racialized populations. And this is what the latter half of the book is largely about. The Mormons who are who are, who only ever occupy this like losing place in the metrics of the racial state. Why? Because they're uh, polygamists. They're understood as perverts and who are racialized in that perversity. They keep claiming like, no, 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 we want to be part of the racial state. We want to be part of the racial state. And to do that, you need to identify us as white people, not as counterfeited white people, but as true white people who deserve the sovereign protections of the state. And that, for me, is what a lot of the tumult of the later 19th century is about. Yeah, that brings me to my next question. So chapter five traces how in the 19th century, the Mormons strove to overcome their delegitimization by adopting a hyper-normativity in terms of, as you alluded to, uh, gender and racial hierarchies that conform to dominant American social norms, uh, which you, and you call this the patriarchal sublime, which I think is a wonderful (laughs) term, Uh, but it makes sense, right? Like they, they're being, uh, um, they're being persecuted and um, whether or not they brought any of that on themselves will set aside. And so the way they try to kind of try to rectify this is through a process that you call hypernormativity, which kind of links to the question of like, why do today's Mormons appear so, so differently than what you describe? So, yeah. So tell us about this. Yeah. I mean, I, again, as I, I will say from the beginning, as I always say, when I talk about the Mormons, like my real knowledge of Mormonism essentially stops with the attainment of Utah statehood uh, in the 1890s and the renunciation of polygamy. But the Mormons recognize that to have violated the interwoven codes of secular belonging, uh, corporeal, social, sexual, erotic, familial, was to slip in the gradients of national life to the status of racialized and or expendable life. So the Mormons just kept being produced as like enemies of the state, threats to civilization because of their backwardness, their barbarism, because they are perverted by misfiring belief. Their beliefs make them deviants, their deviancy makes them racialized people, et cetera, et cetera. And one Mormon strategy to countervail this is to, again, insist, no, 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 no. What's wrong with the Gentile United States is that they keep mistaking us for non-white people. On the contrary, they'll say, we have our whiteness. What attests to it? Our racist distinctions are what Jared Hickman calls the deplorable, deplorable history of theological racism, and also our disposition of gendered life. We're never more normative than in our insistence, our hyper-insistence on the patriarchality of our patriarchal life. The irony of, so that is producing a sort of like, like insistence on a kind of hyper-identification with the norms of the racial state. The irony, of course, is they were still polygamous and that wasn't going to work because polygamy itself was too great a violation of the codes of normative intimacy, set them too apart from the structures of secular legitimacy. And so only until they renounced polygamy, the thing that announced them as deviants, as perverts, and as racialized in that deviancy, only when they announced polygamy could their eventual assimilation to the orders of the racial state begin. And they were prepared for it, right, by these series of identifications that came before the renunciation of polygamy. But the renunciation of polygamy is the thing that allows them the limited sovereignty of statehood. 
And that's what comes at the end of the 19th century for them, with like huge consequences for Mormon theology. Right. So in your final section, you apply a queer reading to highlight how the biopolitics of secularism, as you've defined it, have historically functioned to mark Mormons as expendable and denigrated people on the fringes of respectable, legitimate society, as we've talked about. So this and Mormons' compensatory strategies that emphasize this hypernormativity allows you to draw some compelling parallels with a phenomenon of homo-nationalism. So this is super fascinating as well. Tell us what this means and how you see that working. Well, one of the, as I said at the beginning, like my training is in 19th century American studies and queer studies. Uh, A writer named Jasbir Poir, who anybody who does queer studies will know is super important to me, super important to how I think and how I was able to conceptualize this book really from uh, the moment of its inception. Um, And Poir encourages us to think of a thing she calls homo-nationalism, which is the way that homosexuality too can be offered what she calls innocuous inclusion into the orders of empire, into the orders of, uh, of um, like the liberal capitalist state. Think of the ways that states will describe themselves as inclusive as against the profile of states they want to, say, invade, or from which they want, say, land or resources or labor. That is to say, like, homosexuality can on the one hand mark a moment of a scandal and exclusion, even as, on the other hand, the inclusion of homosexuality in, like, the orders of liberal life can mark that orders beneficence. It's large-scale munificence. Um, And she encourages us to think of, like, ways of identifying homosexuality with the racial orders of imperial life. It just seemed to me that was a super smart framework for understanding what's happening in the Mormon 19th century, where these racialized perverts are trying to uh, produce some sort of like countervailing account of themselves as against their denigration uh, in the liberal secular order of things by saying, no, 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 we super want into the racial state. We super want into the racial state. Look at our patriarchy. Look at our racial distinction. Look at our uh, act as colonizers. And that's they're, they're precisely looking for uh, inclusion into the orders of life. And that framework just seemed really helpful for thinking about the 19th century and also for thinking finally about like the high costs of secular belonging. Like I know you've mentioned like, oh, this is not what people think about when they think about Mormonism. Well, in part because like, the erasure of polygamy came with like an erasure, not an erasure, but a muting of early Mormon cosmology as rooted in a radical theory of embodied life, early Mormonism as keyed to pleasure, above all, early Mormonism as keyed to a kind of deviance. That gets muted tremendously over the course of the 20th century in these countervailing efforts at hyper-normative belonging which will secure for the Mormons a place in like the racial order of liberal dominion. And for Poir, that's a story about 20 and 21st century queer life. For me, that story is incredibly illuminating when you're thinking about the trajectory of Mormonism from like paradigm of bad belief to good religion in the 20 and 21st century. Yeah, that's right. I just want to underscore those ideas connection to your overarching thesis about um, uh, 
this way of thinking about secularism as this dominating um, narrative about what is okay belief and what is not. And that eventually Mormons realized they had to make a value choice, right? What is worth it to us? Are we willing to cut off what I think they would have argued was a super important part of their um, theology to say, no, we would rather be accepted members of American society. That's basically what you're arguing, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't know that it's so much we would rather be accepted members of American society so much as we would rather not be murdered. We would rather not be imprisoned. We would rather rather not have the conditions of life be made unlivable. This is what disciplines do, right? Disciplines alter the conditions of livability such that decisions are so I would want to back away from like they made a choice like as I say in the book all the transformations I'm describing in Mormon in the Mormon 19th century are best conceived of like as semi-voluntary at most that is to say they're being made in breathless proximity to the always present possibility of violence of state violence of non-state violence against them They're being made in proximity to disciplines, to things that are producing order that the Mormons are askance of. So the idea isn't just that like, well, we're deciding that we want to be Americans rather than uh, 19th century Mormons. It's rather that if we want to continue living as a religion, as a sodality, as a social world, it's been made clear to us that if we don't alter our structures in the face of uh, the United States, will be annihilated, will be, will be like annihilated in a non-figurative way. Uh, so that would, I think, be the, the stakes of those transformations for me. And that, again, speaks to like the force of secular discipline, the force of secular discipline. That makes sense. That That's much better phrasing, because really, that's how hegemonies operate, right? Exactly. It's, it's not Fairly just presenting exactly. a choice and, and a little bit of peer pressure. It's <laughs> yeah, the stakes are pretty large. Yeah. And for the and I and it's hard to overstate the degrees to which um, the like, I think one of their lawyers in D.C., whose name I forget, because I wrote this passage some time ago, says like um, X million Americans have decided that uh, polymily, polygamy will be eliminated or Mormonism shall. And like, you know, the Mormons are in the West in the 19th century. They don't have to look around for an example of what genocidal elimination looks like. They're living next to native peoples. They know what that looks like. Wounded knee happens all of three months after the renunciation of polygamy. They know what the imperial violence of secular discipline looks like because it's being lived out on the persons of native peoples across the 19th century into the 20th. So that that really gives point to the the the, the stakes of these transformations for them, I think. Indeed. So maybe we've already covered this, but forgive me, you've got this great phrase uh, towards the end of the book. And so I just wanted to ask you to unpack that. And that was basically that you argue that the Mormon story highlights how secularism can be seen as, quote, the racialized theodicy of hegemonic liberalism. So there is a lot going there. Yeah, Yeah, Carolyn, I can tell you when that actually condensed for me in a coffee shop in Portland, Maine one year, I was like, okay, I got it now. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's the thesis, right, of the whole book? Yeah, yeah. the thesis of the whole book is how do you want to call secularism is the racialized theodicy proper to imperial liberalism, proper to liberalism in its imperial mode. That is to say, a mode of uh, dispossession 
and uh, of security required to sustain that dispossession that happens just in a disaggregated way across populations disaggregated by things like race and gender. Um, and secularism is, theodicy means like sacraliz- sacralizing vindication of what is, of the world as it is. Secularism tells you the world as it is, is ordered by God, as it is. Colonial, slave-made, expansionist, dispossessionary capitalist, uh, attuned to private property. And that's that was the the most rigorous conception of what I mean by secularism as a political epistemology, as I could come up with, or rather the most condensed one. (laughs) Excellent. Um, so yeah, if I can ask you, I, I know you mentioned that you're, you know, you're an expert in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, but still, if we could still kind of, uh, port these ideas to our more contemporary time, I was just curious your opinion, because it seems to me that our contemporary world is less dominated by Christianity now than it was in the 19th century. And so much of what you describe as this hegemonic liberalism, um, sounds to me like Christianity, Mm -hmm. uh, just calling itself something else. So do you think that the problems you outline with secularism uh, exist to the same degree in today's society? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, one thing to say about the book, like strong yes, absolute hard yes, this is a book that comes after September 11th, right? Where Where the orders of imperial liberalism understand themselves or gather themselves around, gather their armies around the prospect of a set of belief practices understood to be a-civilizational. Just think back to the ways that Islam has been figured. Like we, we, like people still go on TV, still, now, 2022, and ask themselves with great ponderous seriousness, Islam, is it a religion? Hmm. You know, like very, like entirely seriously. So like the grammar of imperial secularism is entirely with us now. It may have different inflections. It may have different targets. It may have different uh, points of emphasis and disemphasis, but absolutely yes. Like the hegemonies of liberalism are with us still and the alibis of liberal hegemony are with us still. And secularism is one of the strongest uh, 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 ways of conceptualizing those hegemonies for me. And yeah, that's I that's I that's I suppose what I would say. And I would say too, I'd say too, it's always what I teach. I always have to remind like having a critique of secularism is not the opposite of a critique of any particular practice of religion. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think like, I do. Like I can talk to you as long as you want about like the tremendous homophobia that has convulsed Mormonism across the 20th century but not just Mormonism, obviously, a variety of Protestantisms and non-Protestantism. I could talk to you as much as you want about that, but I would want to be careful to do it in ways that are not exonerating to the dispossessive orders of liberalism in which they take place. And attacking them as religions, faulting them because it's their religious substance that makes them so, seems to me to do exactly that exonerating work, which I don't want to do. So that would be the, I have to keep saying to people like a critique of secularism is not the disabling of a critique of any particular religious practice or any particular um, style of devotion. Right. So my next question, again, a little bit out from left field, but I I think will still help to clarify um, uh, how we're perceiving of this critique. So, and that's about Scientology. 
So it's similarly rejected. Uh, I think it's called a bad faith. It kind of in the ways that that you're mm-hmm. talking about that we determine something is just doesn't count. It's not uh, <clears throat> it's not the right kind of religion, um, uh, but not for the reasons you identify as discrediting Mormonism. It's a different beast, uh, but because it's deemed to be, I think, fair to say disingenuous. It's an exploitative fraud. It was invented by a science fiction writer to make some money. I think uh, we have some evidence to support that view, never mind the fact that they seem to exploit and abuse their followers, etc. So I guess that makes me ask, uh, how, how then can we properly judge a faith as a bad faith on its merits? How do we fit that kind of critique within this, this I mean, structure? Yeah, Carolyn, I guess the thing I would say is I don't really have a lot of interest in judging something as a good or a bad faith at all. Like that's just not a set of concepts that I that I find particularly useful. On the other hand, if you want to judge something for its exploitativeness, knock yourself out. If you want to judge something for the way that it manipulates and controls labor, knock yourself out. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, critique something because of its employment of rather than resistance to racial hierarchies or gender hierarchies, knock yourself out. All what, of it, these things what, about its tr- what about its truth claims, though? That's truth claims. What about that? But uh, what I was about to say is like, what about the truth claims of capital? What about the truth claims of one's employer? Well, Keep I think the- I think we should critique all of those on the basis right, of right, their right. merit and, and evidence. Right. But that's not a critique on the basis of their faith. Like to work, to be a worker inside a capitalized world is also to express a kind of faith. Obviously, it's to express a set of uh, of beliefs that one has signed off on in varyingly voluntary ways. The matter is not so much faith, which is to keep the matter at the level of like private choice, et cetera, et cetera. The matter would be rather one of exploitation and dominion. You want to talk about Scientology as something that produces exploitation and dominion with you. It's faith doesn't seem to me like that germane to it, because literally any kind of exploitation and dominion will have its aspects of faith interwoven with it. Like the idea that it mixes belief and money, a real no-no. But oh my God, like think of the most conventional churches you can think of. They have a lot of money inside them. Those have just been naturalized as a part of a faith practice that looks more at home in the norms of liberal belonging, right? So this is not like a defense of Scientology. No, no. It is, however, a strong resistance on my part to uh, figure that the problem with Scientology is that it's a benighted faith. Meh. Like, lots of things are benighted faith. I go to work every day. I want to critique myself for that benighted faith, you know? Uh, and that's very different from thinking like, no, it is exploitative. It produces practices of labor that are murderous, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm Yeah, sorry. yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess uh, to an extent, I feel like I'm coming from the outside because I'm an atheist, <laughs> which mm-hmm. probably gives me the, you know, undeserved feeling that I'm above all this belief stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, that's the, the point of post-secular critique would be to say there is no space of exteriorized neutrality from which to be inside this. I expected that. So yeah. I guess I'm trying to, yeah. like, trying to, ima- <laughs> like, how do I fit in with this? Right. I, I mean, it's a, it's trying to get a, a like a, a tighter gla- grasp on the conditioning structures of the world that make our positions thinkable and legible to one another, not from the position of like uh, either disabling critique, 
but also being able, but so because of course, as I keep saying, like there are many, many, many forms of critique that seem to be on their feet and legitimate, and they would have to do with dispossession and property exploitation, mm-hmm. but also a refusal to default to the terms that liberal empire gives us. Right, right. I'm critiquing it from within the vocabulary of that liberalism. So, Which just produces a kind of apologetics for a a liberal sexual order, which is, again, as I try to say in the book, it's hard, man. Like, I guess I'd say by way of conclusion, like part of the joy of writing this book, which was hard to write in a lot of ways, was realizing that, as I say somewhere in it, like secularism, as I'm trying to understand it, is a difficult set of organizing premises to get beneath because it is in real ways, not the thing we think, but what we have to think with. Exactly. And that makes it hard. That makes it a theoretical project. That's why yes. like theory is interesting to me. That's why me too. Uh, Marx and Foucault and all that sort of stuff. Is that, you know yeah. what I'm saying? That's, yeah. that's, that's where the, the, the the labor of it is um and yeah the this was a i'll say just it was hard but it was a kind of pleasure to get to try to think in these unfamiliar ways so i'll just make an aside to listeners if they're interested in theoretically based types of reading and they're up for a really challenging mind expanding experience i can't recommend this book more highly because it just <laughs> uh you're listening to this channel because you're interested in secularism and as i already mentioned this is a take on secularism that i had not yet encountered and it's just Oh, so, so interesting to Carolyn, put it That's in, very kind of you. That's very, uh, very kind well, of you to say. I love postmodern theory. I'm a theory head as well. I love all that stuff. And so for me, like you're like what you're talking about resonates with so much of what I've already read along those lines, but just on a topic that is completely different from what I've read uh, along those lines. That's, so. I, I just want to tell you, that's very, that's, that's kind of you to say, and it's just very heartening uh, to hear. It's just very, it's very kind of you to say. So one very last question, and that yeah. is that because um, I, I noticed Joan Wallach Scott's uh, yeah. endorsement on the back, and you do mention her throughout the book. I think you mentioned her in the interview already. And so and it's a super complimentary endorsement, as one would expect. But she also calls your book a revisionist history, which, um, uh, yeah, that's a bit odd, right? That's not usually a compliment. So, so tell us uh, how to understand this oh, comment. I, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would always let uh, Joan speak for herself, but I understand it to mean that the aim of the book is to revise conventional histories of Mormonism and to situate it rather differently inside, say, the racial history of sexuality and uh, secularism ties to empire, rather than in the history of Christianity, the history of American Protestantism, the history of American religion or something like that. So it's revising uh, Mormon studies in that way. I will say again, like, um, I was very, very, very fortunate to write this book um, at the Institute for Advanced Study, where uh, Professor Scott is uh, has long taught. And it was largely done in conversation with her, which was so galvanizing, so clarifying, so like pervasively challenging and energizing. So I, I would not want to end without saying what an enormous debt, uh, just a, like a, a unrepayable intellectual debt I owe to Joan, a true oh. giant in the in the world of humanities scholarship. Oh, fantastic. So Pete, I've taken up a lot of your time. I know you <laughs> need to get going soon. I thank you so much for spending this time with me. But in the few minutes we have left, uh, yeah. can you tell us what you're currently working on? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, I have a book that's going to come out, which is in a very different key. Uh, it's called Is There God After Prince? And it's about what uh, devotion to things like 
art and culture can mean in the context of a collapsing world. It's really a book about love and criticism in end times. Uh, and those are very, very different. Like those are very familiar essays. Those are like non-specialist uh, memoirish-ish essays, which have been published in a lot of places that will also come out about this time next year from the University of Chicago Press. Meanwhile, I'm working on a very big book about Melville and tyranny in the 19th century. It's called After Ahab, and it's trying to think about uh, the languages we use to describe tyranny inside, again, a uh, liberal secularizing empire. Huh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's a All lot right. to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. As I mentioned, I really loved your book and it was super fun to chat with you about it in person. So hopefully you can come back sometime. Carolyn, I would be very happy to. Listen, if anyone wants to talk about the, the Prince book, I'm ready to go. Cool. Let's yeah. do it. Okay. Again, thank you so much. This was All a right. pleasure. Thanks. Goodbye. So thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Peter Coviello about his new book, Make Yourselves Gods, Mormons and the Unfinished Business of American Secularism, published by University of Chicago Press. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you know the routine. Please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. It's the best way that you can help us get the word out about the New Books Network. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. So tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? You can contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com, and be sure to like us on the New Books Network page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.